I'm Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. We're back. Apologies for missing last week. As you may know, New York was getting slammed with a blizzard uh, on Wednesday, and we were snowed out of our studio, so thanks for sticking with us. I'm joined today by my colleague, Alex Neeson, a senior Delacorte fellow at CJR. Alex, thanks for being here. Hey. And we've also got a special New York appearance by Brendan Fitzgerald, CJR's United States project editor who has made the trek up from Charlottesville. Brendan, great to see you in person. Yeah, yeah, you too, Pete Alex. So with Brendan here, we wanted to turn our gaze beyond the Acela Corridor, and this month's teacher strike in West Virginia gives us a good jumping off point to do that. I saw a good amount of coverage of the strike, but also heard a lot of commentary on social media clamoring for more attention. Um, Alex, I'll, I'll ask you, what did you think of the national coverage of this event? So I think we saw quite a bit of national coverage from newspapers and from cable news. CNN sent a crew down uh, in February when the strike started, uh, and they stayed until the strike was officially broken. And they had a lot of coverage, TV stuff and web stuff, that kind of looked at what was happening, why it was happening, and also that touched on, in some instances, a long history of labor strikes in West Virginia. The New York Times, I was surprised. I I ran a search on the Times website to look at uh, all of their coverage of this, and the majority of it were wire stories from the AP and from Reuters. There were some stories that uh, New York Times reporters wrote uh, after the strike ended. Dana Goldstein wrote a long piece that was about the West Virginia strike in a larger context of teachers' unions. I also saw coverage in outlets like Splinter News. So I think there was a fair amount of coverage sort of across mediums. And, Brendan, being a little bit closer to the action down in Virginia, what was your impression of the coverage you saw? The coverage I saw, I wholeheartedly second you know, Alex's take that there were, um, there were certainly those national outlets that did devote some resources. Where I've been more interested in looking is at whether national news outlets have been willing to learn from sort of the, you know, some of the startups or even some of the legacy newsrooms um, in that region. And that those concerns extend as far as sourcing and really the framing and delivery of narratives from people who are in West Virginia. You know, in West Virginia and in sort of the greater uh, Appalachian region right now, there are um, a number of startups that have really devoted a lot of energy and time into really cultivating uh, networks of sources, um, people who have kind of deep historical ties to the region, and encouraging their stories to kind of take center stage, um, giving their narratives more of a platform. And that's just, that that's still not necessarily something you see a lot of from national media. Yeah, and part of the U.S. Project's goal is to highlight and talk about some of those startups and those efforts. Um, I know that you can't take any one region of the country and use it to explain the rest, but taking Appalachia, have you seen a good amount of energy in the journalism space? I mean, I know some of the legacy publications there have struggled. The Charleston Gazette-Mail in West Virginia just filed for bankruptcy. What's going on in those spaces that we do sometimes, as Alex said, uh, overlook or only pop in on from a national perspective. You know, one of the um, great testaments to uh, storytelling happening in Appalachia right now is, uh, I think, Elaine Sheldon's documentary, Heroin, which was a finalist in the short category from this year's Oscars. Yeah, Yeah, so, I mean, that's certainly um, a really exemplary instance. But in July of last year, CJR worked with a West Virginia writer named Catherine Moore 
who had gone to the New Story event, this kind of panel put on by the West Virginia Community Development Hub. And, you know, this is, um, is a gathering that happened at least a couple years running. I'm not sure whether they're doing it again. But the New Story attracted Apple Shop, which is a documentary organization, Southerly, which is a really wonderful regional newsletter about environmental issues written by a, a Kentucky resident. It, it became kind of an assembly of storytellers who are interested in establishing deeper roots in that part of the country rather than doing what we see a lot of reporters doing and maybe building up a, a resume or a portfolio of clips there and then decamping for other kind of major media centers where there are a greater variety of job opportunities. Yeah, and this whole conversation, of course, is taking place against the backdrop of an election in which much of the media reflection focused on a lack of attention or a lack of understanding of certain regions of the country outside of major media centers. We dedicated an entire issue last year to local news and some of the challenges that it faces. And now we're heading into another election season. I know we don't have all the answers by any means, but using, again, this West Virginia teacher strike as an example, are there suggestions, are there strategies or certain things that national or local outlets are doing that seem to be working and gaining traction? You know, I'm, uh, I'm interested in those strategies that really involve maybe more coaching of people on the ground uh, in West Virginia and in other parts of the region, coaching them to tell their own stories. I recently had a conversation with Elizabeth Catt, who is the author of What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia, uh, in which she responds in part to narratives like Hillbilly Elegy, where um, one personal narrative is kind of laid like a blanket over the region, and also kind of a historical document about when reporters come from major um, urban areas into West Virginia to write like travel dispatches that really risk mischaracterizing a lot of people there. In our talk, she brought up Belt, which is a Rust Belt-based magazine and uh, book publisher, and that they are right now working on an anthology of stories about the West Virginia teacher strike. And those stories are not by no means told exclusively by reporters. I mean, they're told by uh, teachers. Um, and I think that when you do that, when you can work with a teacher who has direct experience um, and lived experience in a story that a number of people are trying to tell, you, you bring an entirely different sensibility to how those stories are delivered, what points feel really crucial to make, who else should be talked to, um, whose perspective should be invited. Yeah, and that's an encouraging sign from the local media. Alex, you called it a missed opportunity. So what, when the next major story happens, whether that's a strike, whether that's these upcoming midterm elections, what can national outlets do better in your mind to avoid making some of the mistakes that you saw during the West Virginia teacher strike? So missed opportunity might be a little bit strong, but uh, yeah. one thing that I did notice in, in reading a lot of the coverage is that very quickly national media sort of latched on to like a narrative that's kind of wrote itself. Teachers in West Virginia were on strike and West Virginia has a very rich labor history. And that's sort of one of the things that everyone does know about West Virginia. I think when we talk about you know, folks parachuting in and out of uh, regions like this that we don't have a lot of sort of nuanced understanding of. We tend to rely on the, the one things that we do know. In the case of Trump, it was that everybody voted for him. Right. Um, I think in this case, it was that coal miners went on strike in like very fierce ways in West Virginia. And so that obviously, it is a part of the story. And so it was not surprising to see that sort of laced into basically every story written uh, in a national outlet about this strike. But I did wonder whether or not we were sort of falling into the same trap of like just continuously reporting one single strand of a story over and over and over again. 
Yeah, and that's going to be the challenge for national reporters going out into different regions of the country, especially as some of the traditional local media outlets uh, continue to be hollowed out. There are these digital or multi-platform startups, but it's going to take a while for them to gain traction. And I'm interested as we head into the midterms whether or not we do see more nuance or a more critical examination of you know, multiple threads. We, we know about the white working class. We've heard about that both before and especially after the election. Um, I don't know. Are you guys optimistic that throughout the summer and into the fall we're going to see better coverage of local regions? I'm I'm concerned about the opportunities for legacy West Virginia media to tell stories, certainly. I mean, yesterday it was announced that 11 people who had applied to keep their jobs at the Gazette Mail will not. A bunch of jobs are going unfilled as well. I'm not at all concerned that West Virginia residents have a lack of local sources through which they can tell their stories and hear others. I, I, I think that there are plenty of people on the ground there doing really worthwhile work. What I what I do wonder is whether w- whether there are lessons that will be delivered solely through West Virginia uh, or Appalachian media that might be shared by national news sources so that they reach a greater you know cultural awareness they reach a broader audience as organized labor efforts kind of take greater shape or take on new urgency in other parts of the country. I'd also add that in the coverage of the strike and even as it spread to other places. If you, if you looked at like how stories were framed, I think people really latched on to the idea that this was a state full of Trump voters, a state full of working class white people who were engaged in this action that is seen as very lefty and un-Trump-like, I guess. And, and I think that sort of ignores or at least moves out of view some of the racial nuance that's in there. For example, there, when the coverage started to spread beyond West Virginia about the potential for teacher strikes, most of that coverage was about Oklahoma. There was a little bit of talk about action in Arizona. Um, there was also a strike, though, that was very narrowly averted in Jersey City. And when you think about the demographics of a place like Jersey City versus West Virginia, they're really different. And then I was also reminded of coverage in Detroit a couple of years ago where teachers in Detroit, largely black teachers, carried out a series of uh, sick outs, they, call, they were called essentially sort of strike lights and and thinking about like how that stuff was framed. I think it's just something to keep in mind as we continue to encourage coverage of, you know, locations just to, I don't know, just to kind of keep our eyes open. I saw way less coverage about stuff happening in Jersey City, which was, I think, more narrowly avoided than it was in Oklahoma um, and, and just kind of where we might have some blind spots. Yeah, I think the takeaway is that each of these examples, whether it's West Virginia, whether it's a quicker story like Jersey City, provides us with an opportunity to test out new approaches and to measure how the national media is doing after all of that reflection. And when we have these very important midterm elections coming up, we'll hopefully see better coverage. Turning now to a conversation that has sparked a lot of debate among journalists and media observers this week, uh, I want to play a clip from CNN's Reliable Sources on Sunday in which Brian Stelter interviews Rebecca Schneid, one of the editors of the Stoneman Douglas High School student newspaper. He's speaking to her after the March for Our Lives in Washington, D.C., and questions the idea of the student journalists also acting as gun control activists. 
Rebecca, I wonder what yesterday felt like for you because I, I see a lot of Parkland students becoming activists, but you all were there as journalists. Do you see a difference right now between journalism and activism and what you're doing? I think that for me, the purpose of journalism is to raise you know, the voices of people that maybe don't have a voice. And so I think that in its own right, journalism is a form of activism. So when and CNN tweeted that out that clip, a bunch of journalists took note of it. And again, it sparked this really interesting debate. A couple of the comments that got a lot of attention, the first is from National Journal Politics editor Josh Kraushar, who tweeted, quote, journalism isn't activism. It's presenting the facts honestly and objectively. It's this mentality that's killing trust in our profession. So that was one view that was presented. Then LA Times national reporter Matt Pierce jumped in and said, quote, journalism is activism in its most basic form. The entire basis for its ethical practice is the idea that a democracy requires an informed citizenry in order to function. Choosing what you want people to know is a form of activism, even if it's not the march and protest kind. This conversation about what journalism is, how activism does or does not play into our jobs as journalists has been uh, a really interesting one to to watch unfold online and even have conversations about in person. So I'm interested in what you guys think. Alex, what's your response to this this question and to the opinions on either side that are kind of getting shared? I mean, look, there are clear differences between sort of traditional advocacy and what we do every day as journalists. To me, um, what people are kind of arguing about is this larger idea of objectivity hmm. um, and you know objectivity in the way that we discuss it just does not exist I think there's this assumption there's this really intense desire to paint journalists as these sort of passive you know external beings like unaffected by everything that's happening and so able to make decisions all the, de the decisions that are necessary when we write stories when we report stories um, from an impartial standpoint it's just not human it doesn't exist and I think like we really just need to get over that. I do think that there are steps that we take as journalists to acknowledge biases that we might have, and there's certainly a way to be, there's certainly a right way to report a story. But there are all these choices that we make. Like Matt Pierce said, we make decisions about what stories get coverage. We make decisions about who to interview. We make decisions about how we're framing stories and headlines. All of these things are influenced by these like sometimes unconscious biases that we have. And so to pretend that that doesn't exist, to pretend that, you know, that we're not making decisions in the way that we are when we carry out the course of our jobs uh, as journalists is like kind of foolish, I think. Yeah. This idea of objectivity as some goal that's, as you said, unobtainable goes to uh, a fear from consumers. And we, of course, are consumers of news as well, that somehow we're, we're being tricked, that if journalists aren't quote-unquote objective, then they're lying to us, and we're not getting the full picture. Right, right. I mean, um, I feel like one of the, you know, you could define journalism a number of ways. I, I think that one of the working definitions for me is how to be like a credible steward of information for people. And I, I think that, you know, any news consumer would do well to, when they see coverage of an issue that they have a stake in or um, a place uh, in w that they know with some intimacy, uh, to ask themselves, like, okay, when I encounter stories, when I, when I, when I watch television news, when I um, read my local paper, how has someone shown me their credibility? Um, how have they demonstrated to me that they have provided me information in, in, in a way that bolsters my conviction that they have done a good job? 
if you think about the, the reasons people get into journalism, often it's because they want to, in some way, affect change in the world. And that could be through transparency for activist journalists. That could be promoting a certain ideology. But one of the, I feel like we all get taught this quote at some point, one of the goals of journalism is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, right? And that in and of itself is, in some ways, uh, a form of activism. Mm -hmm. I think it's also interesting, particularly with the students from Stoneman Douglas and this question of are they gun control activists or are they journalists covering gun control activists? I mean, there's this sort of inevitable interaction that we have. Like, journalists cover movements of advocacy. We interview activists often. Those are not the only people that we interview, and certainly we're not sort of, we don't sort of exist as like a mouthpiece for them, but I think that there's an inevitable interaction that we're going to have with folks on sort of either side of those lines. But, you know, with the, the issue of coverage of, of the Parkland movement that ha that's sort of been born after the shooting, um, if you think about like data, when we make decisions and we're writing stories or reporting stories out about like what data to use, I think even then, numbers, statistics, science are seen as like this sort of impartial, objective, uh, absolute. And even that is not true because data is collected by people and people make decisions about what data collect and how to collect it. And all of those things, again, are impacted by our unconscious biases. And so uh, I think it's just important to keep that stuff in mind. I'm just reminded of all of the times where someone will write a story and interview some expert, some scientist somewhere, and he will present a data set and say this proves X, Y, Z, and then someone else can write another story and consult some other data guy who will present some other data set and say this disproves that very thing, and here are the numbers. And, you know, this stuff is, like, really confusing, and it's never going to be an absolute, like— Well, even, even in the, the example you just gave, I feel like there was an unconscious bias there that's probably ingrained— in that when you talked about interviewing a science, you said what he says. Yeah, as soon as I said that. <laughs> so, so, and, and we, we think talk about this all the time and still fall into the trap of, oh, well, when we're interviewing an economist, the, the number of economists quoted in national news stories are overwhelmingly male. And that presents a set of biases. You talk about it with gender representation, racial representation, class representation. All of those unconscious decisions bring bias into stories. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that you talk about objectivity, like, I do think there needs to be an acknowledgement that while that might be a goal, it's just not a reality. I mean, I think fairness is the better word to use. Like, you can report a story that is fair and that gives space for people to to challenge ideas. And, and like you said, Brendan, like, you know, you seek out people who have demonstrated honesty and use them as sources. And then in turn, readers do the same when they decide where they're going to consume their news from. So I think that like fairness is should be at the top of our lists as journalists. But, you know, it's kind of arrogant to think that we are so above the human condition that we can report the news and the goings on of the world completely unaffected by all of these things. Like, I just don't understand the compulsion. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Uh, Brendan, thank you so much for coming up from Virginia. Thanks, Pete. Alex, thanks so much for coming downstairs. <laughs> Please check out all the great work we've got up at cjr.org, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>